Welcome to the Torah Journey Podcast. My name is Rabbi Ken Brodkin, and I've been a community rabbi for over 15 years. During that time, I've learned that the wisdom of Judaism is powerful, but it's not always easy to understand. Our weekly podcast will enrich your journey and give you practical advice about how to apply the wisdom of Judaism to your life. We'll offer you insights based on the Parsha, current events, the Jewish year, and more. This is the Torah Journey Podcast. It's great to be with you today. Last Friday night, my wife and I took a walk with our three-year-old daughter in the neighborhood, and we came across a lawn that was decorated with Christmas lights and decorations, and my daughter was not daunted by the fact that it was someone else's yard, and she ran up to touch the lights, and she was so excited, and when she exclaimed, Abba, they're not hot. As I looked at her with the lights, it struck me how we're living in a society which is culturally, and to a degree religiously, Christian. As Jews, this is something that we grapple with. And on the one hand, we foresee a Jewish destiny for our kids. And yet, the more that our children grow up, the more they realize that we're living in a non-Jewish world. And these short December days are an important time to reflect on this. The Talmud points out that the winter solstice is a time when non-Jewish peoples tend to establish festivals. In fact, when Adam Rishon, Adam, saw the days getting shorter, he feared for his future and the future of the world. And when, when the solstice came and the days began to get longer, it was a time of thanksgiving. And this helps explain why many worshipping societies had a festival around the time of the solstice. Hanukkah is not about the solstice per se, though it is a time of increasing light in the short, dark days, at least in the Northern Hemisphere. So, as we leave Hanukkah in these darker days, we ask ourselves, what does it mean to raise kids in a non-Jewish world? And in today's podcast, let's consider what it means to guide our children towards a Jewish destiny, even in a world where we're a tiny minority. On Hanukkah, we sing the stanzas of Maus Tzor as we look back to all the exiles of the Jewish people who have survived, starting with Egypt, Mitzrayim. And the stanzas of this song describe Jewish survival in the Galiot, the exiles, Bavel, Babylonia, Madai, Persia, Yavan, Greece, and Edom, Rome. And in this Hanukkah classic, Hashem is the, the Tzor, the rock, who is the foundation of how we've survived every stage of exile. And Hanukkah really marks our victory over the Greeks, a society that didn't want to destroy us physically, but did oppose our ideology. And in tandem with this, every Hanukkah, we learn the riveting plot of Yosef and the brothers. What happens in this drama? Well, the brothers fall into a deep dispute, and it foreshadows a lot of tension and civil war in the rest of Tanakh. In addition, these brothers, starting with Yosef, were the first group of Jews, Israelites, to find themselves planted in a foreign culture, namely Egypt. And from the story, two leaders emerge, Yosef and Yehuda, and they're people whose lives shed light on really two distinct Jewish paths. They are paths that your own children might choose between. And as we get clear on the difference between Yosef and Yehuda, we become better equipped to raise our own children, recognizing some of the paths that lie before them. As our Parsha, Miketz, begins, the drink master has all but forgotten Yosef who was dwelling in the pit. And then with the dreams of Yosef, the dreams of Paro, that is, Yosef is suddenly remembered. The Pusik describes Yosef's quick ascent. 
Vayishlach paro v'yikras Yosef v'yitzuhu minabor v'yigaleach v'yichalaf simlosav. Paro sent and called unto Yosef, who was rushed from the pit. Yosef shaved and changed his clothes, and he came unto Paro. And so, foreshadowing the quick redemption of Israel from slavery, Yosef has gone from being a lowly prisoner to standing before Paro, the king, in a matter of moments. And Yosef informs Paro that interpretation of dreams is unto Hashem. And then, after sharing his interpretation of the dreams, Yosef rises very suddenly to become the deputy Paro. As it says, Vayomer Paro Elavadov, Hanimsa Isha Sheruach Elokimbo. Paro said to his servants, Could we find another like him, a man in whom there is the Spirit of God? And so what emerges here is really a first example, an early example of a, a recurring theme in history. The outsider Jew is rising high in the ranks. And throughout, Yosef never loses his identity. He constantly attributes his abilities to God. As our rabbis point out, Shem Shemayim Shagur Befiv, the name of heaven, was regularly upon his lips. And just like his great-grandfather, Yosef is a man who represents God. He's unabashed, like Avraham, of his loyalty and his belief in the Creator. And the innovation is that Yosef does this from the very highest seats of power. And it's an innovation that his father, Yaakov, recognizes. Because when Yaakov comes to Mitzrayim, when he comes to Egypt, he blesses Menashe and Ephraim, the children of Yosef. And Yaakov famously states that the Malach, the angel who went before him in exile, will redeem these lads, the children of Yosef. And he says these children will be fruitful and the Jewish people will be blessed through them. And to this very day, we invoke these names, Ephraim and Menashe, when we bless our own children. In a sense, you can think of them as the first Jewish kids that were raised in Gullus. They grew up in the palace of Paro, and yet they carry on the legacy of Avraham, their great-great-grandfather. And you might think that Yosef's children would just become Egyptians. But instead, what they become is examples of Jewish thriving in a foreign context. And so Yosef and his sons are one facet of this whole story. And there's another facet. In the Haggadah, on the night of Pesach, we note that the Jewish people were mitzuyanim. They were distinct when they were in Egypt. And the Midrash teaches us the Jewish people were distinct by means of their dress and their names and their language. And the Jewish people even lived in a distinct place within Egypt, namely Goshen. And this innovation of living in Goshen began with Yehuda. In Parshas Vayigash, Yaakov sends Yehuda Lahorot Lafan of Goshna, which Rashi teaches us that Yehuda was sent Lahorot to establish a place of Horah, a place of teaching in the land of Goshen, for the Jewish people. And so, while Yosef was residing in the king's palace, in the center of it all, Yehud established a more separate Jewish society. And Yosef actually supported this move. When the brothers first came to Egypt, Yosef tells them to let Paro know that they are roim, they are shepherds. You should say to Paro, Yosef told them, your servants have been shepherds from our youth and until now, both us and our forefathers. 
so that you may settle in the land of Goshen, since all shepherds are an abomination to Egypt. And Rashi explains that Egypt despised shepherds because the Egyptians worshipped the very animals that shepherds herded. And so the brothers were really supposed to say to power in effect, you're not going to want us around. We're an abomination. Why don't you let us go settle this out-of-the-way place, Goshen, where you won't be bothered by us? And so taken in this light, we can better appreciate the idea that the Jewish people were mitsuyanim, they were distinct. On the night of the, ex- of the Exodus, they were living in their own locale, and it all began with Yehuda, the leader of the brothers, who led the way to Goshen. And so while Yosef was a man of God in the palace of Paro, Yehuda built a distinct Jewish settlement. And through these lives of Yosef and Yehuda, we see two types of Jewish leaders. There is Yosef, who is amidst the high culture of Egypt. And then there is Yehuda. He builds the distinct Jewish culture specifically removed from the palace or anything close to it. These two paradigms continue in our own times. There are successful Jewish people who are immersed in the non-Jewish society. Like Yosef, the name of God is hopefully on their lips. I remember when Joe Lieberman, an observant Jew, was nominated as the Democratic candidate for vice president about 20 years ago. It was such a shock to see an Orthodox Jew on the front pages of Time magazine and other publications, and you suddenly felt cool to be Orthodox. But I think this can happen at any level of society. I look around our show. I see business people, accountants, and just many other people who represent the Jewish people with the name of God in their lips. You don't have to hold high office to be like Yosef. But then on the other hand, there are people like Yehuda, and they focus more on strengthening the inner tent of the Jewish people. I think about great rabbis, be it Rav Salvechik or of Aaron Cutler, the Klausenberger Rebbe, who came to American shores to build strong Jewish schools and communities. And so many others, great rabbis or not, follow in their paths today. And there are different leaders, the Mashiach of Yosef and the Mashiach of Yehuda, as it were. And both of these paths are needed. You bring a child into a world, who will they be? Perhaps they'll be a person that grows up and moves to Israel or lives and even works within a community that's very Jewish. On the other hand, perhaps they will be a person whose center of gravity is much more in the non-Jewish sphere. Each of these modes of living calls us to different strengths. Yosef, like his great-grandfather Avram, was a prince of God, as he spoke before Paro. And Yehuda, too, has a great mission as he creates the center of the Jewish people. It's not easy to stay humble and passionate while you're responsible for building Jewish schools or camps or other centers of identity. Yosef and Yehuda are two types of Jewish leaders, and there's a common theme in their lives. How does Yosef remain steadfast in being an example of God? And how does Yehuda establish a whole society that's purely devoted to Hashem? In the days of Hanukkah, the Hashmonaim were devoted to reigniting the flame of the avod of the temple service. It wasn't easy. There was a huge force of people that sought to adopt the Greek mindset and culture. How did the Maccabees overcome the Syrian Greeks and the Hellenizing Jews? The Bach was a great 17th century rabbi, 
And he points out that the Hashmonaim were ready to be Moser Nefesh. They were ready to give up their lives for their beliefs. As Hellenizing forces spread, these devoted Maccabees were prepared to completely transcend any natural limitation to preserve Jewish connection with Hashem, even to the point of giving up their lives. And in light of this sacrifice, they merited to see a miracle where God allowed nature itself to be overcome as the oil burned for eight days, reigniting the avoda, the temple service. When are people willing to make sacrifices? We sacrifice for things that we perceive to be of ultimate value. And the passion of self-sacrifice and deep-seated belief is really the force that was behind the Hanukkah miracle. And this is the passion that it takes to raise Jewish kids, whether it's in Egypt or Greece or in the U.S. In the United States, the center of gravity is the non-Jewish society. And if we foresee raising children who are passionately Jewish, they're, they're going to have to go against the grain of our culture. And that takes sacrifice, whether it's not playing in the Friday night football game or dressing and acting in a modest way. These are real sacrifices that we ask our children to make. And there are different directions that our children might go in. And whatever path they choose, they're going to make sacrifices. And if we want to raise kids to make these choices, we need to be a model for them. When we live with passionate belief, our children will imbue this lesson. We're not Maccabees sitting in caves about to give up our lives, but we do need to sacrifice to live a life that's authentically Jewish, even in our times. I think about my wife's parents, who picked up, who picked up from Daytona Beach, Florida, in 1981 to move to Atlanta, where, where there was more to offer Jewishly at that time. And my wife to this day remembers when her parents packed up their lives for a, a better Jewish horizon. So your child might be a Yosef or a Yehuda or something different or in between, but wherever they go, our children will need to have their own center of passion and gravity. And that's a cause for reflection for us as parents or grandparents. Where are we in need of sacrifice to deepen ourselves Jewishly? What's something that you need to do that's hard, but will enrich your life and be an example for others? For me, it's making sure that each night when I'm exhausted, I learn some Torah. It's a bit of passion that I try to infuse in my life, and I hope that will seep into my kids. What's a sacrifice you need to make to advance your Jewish life? As we see the sparkle of the non-Jewish holidays around us, remember, our children have a Jewish destiny. As we embrace the challenges of our own journey with sacrifice and passion, the children will be inspired. And wherever we reside, we will raise another door, another generation of Maccabees who kindle and continue the flame. Thank you for joining us for the Torah Journey podcast. Make sure you check us out weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week with a discussion of learning Torah on the 25th of December. We'll talk about the study of Torah in this period of the year and much more. Have a great Shabbos and see you next week.